0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 129 of the podcast, which today is another installment in the Focus, Researchers' Talk. The Focus, Researchers' Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Nicholas Christine, professor at Carnegie Mellon University, jointly appointed in the School of Computer Science and in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy. Nicholas is the director of the Societal Computing PhD program and as well a core faculty member of SciLab the Security and Privacy Institute of the university. Nicholas's research interests are in computer and information systems security, and most of his work is at the boundary of systems, networking, and policy research. So let's begin today's episode, Nicholas Christine on Researcher's Talk. Hi, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon and thank you very much for having
1: me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So um, as I let all my guests know, this is really an interview that's not so much about the content of the research, but really about the means of the researching, in particular with a view to the communication end of it. And I break that down into basically three separate directions, if you like, scientific network, scientific reading, and scientific writing. So to begin at network, one of the things in your... CV, which jumped out at me, was your position as director of the Societal Computing PhD program. And listeners will know this: this uh, show, generally, and this particular focus on the show, is very interested in early career researchers and helping them understand how it is that research is actually done in its full breadth. So perhaps you could speak to your position there, and what it is that you do for PhDs who are hoping to begin a career in research?
1: Sure, yeah. So the position itself is um, primarily an administrative position, in the sense that I'm in charge of making sure that students follow their curriculum, that no one is falling off, that Uh, research is uh, progressing as it should. Uh, But the more interesting part is what we actually do uh, in this program. And the name Societal Computing actually describes that fairly well, I think. So we look at societal aspects of computing, or computational techniques that have great impact on on society. And that's the reason why I became the program director of of this program. I was not the founding director. Uh, I had a number of predecessors, but my own background was really a good fit and a good match for this program. And so that leads me to something that I want to mention for early career uh, researchers. We all pretty much without any exception, have PhD advisors. And so when we start researching, when we are a master's student, when we are an early PhD student, we essentially help out with somebody else's research. And that's fine, that's part of this apprenticeship, of this training that we have to undergo to learn how to do proper research. But one thing that is very important is that as soon as we can, as soon as you can, as an early uh, career researcher, it's really important to become more independent, to, to find your own voice. So if that's okay with you, I'm, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my own history because I didn't start um, in societal computing. I did my PhD pretty much in traditional systems, computer networks, uh, and that's still an interest of mine. But at the time, I was really focusing primarily on algorithms and their implementation, uh, which means a lot of hacking into uh, the FreeBSD kernel uh, back in those days. But as soon as I was advancing in my training and and pretty much as soon as I was done with my, my PhD, I realized that systems and networking, uh, in, in particular, was a fairly crowded field with extremely brilliant individuals. Um, I think of people like Dave Anderson, who is now one of my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon, people like Ian Stoica, uh, and many others, U- Eugene Eng and and others that were more or less my contemporaries. And to be completely frank, I felt like I was not at the same caliber as those people. I mean, they are absolutely fantastic. Uh, Those are, you know, the cream of the cream of the cream of the crop. And so what I thought was, well, if I want to make an impact, instead of trying to compete with people that are very, very good at what they're doing and that are, you know, really at the pinnacle of the field, It's probably better if I can veer a little bit into an area that is a lot less explored, a lot less well-trod, and kind of, you know, plant a stake in the ground, so to speak. Um, Like I always uh, tell my students, it's really easy to be the best person in the world if you're the only person doing something, right? Um, So... It's a quip, but uh, there's, there's a kernel of truth to it, which is that I started being interested due to some of my uh, experiences during my, uh, my PhD, actually, into human aspects applied to systems, but not so much in terms of HCI, much more so in terms of, well, you know, this technology is being used by humans at some point, and there's a bunch of human factors, psychological, that would be HCI, but also economic, uh, financial sometimes, um, and essentially a bunch of things that we don't account for when we design systems that we ought to account for, because ultimately our systems are used by by humans, with, with their strengths, their weaknesses, their particularities, and so forth. And so I decided to kind of branch into that, and a number of years later, uh, I'm, I'm you know, shortcutting probably 10, 12 years of my career uh, at Carnegie Mellon, I became one of the faculty in the societal computing program because that program is exactly that. It's at the intersection of computer science and Human factors. We are computer scientists. where it's not an information systems department. It's really a bunch of computer scientists, but we have interests that are, I would say, very applied, and applied to society. Um, and so that's that's essentially, you know, what led me to this. And at that point, I mean, I, I was very lucky. Um, it's I, I realize it may be disappointing for early career researchers, but luck is something that uh, is. Quite needed uh, in uh, in research, um, but that's what you make out of this luck as well, right? So, luck for me was to get interested in something that was emerging at that time, and I didn't know that, but other people were kind of thinking in the same way as I do, uh, as I did at least, and we're thinking, you know what? We're really we're really missing something because we've got this human computer action, sorry, human computer interaction field. Which is good i mean it's it's really great, all of this work about usability, but there's a lot more to computer science and human factors than simple. HCI. I'm, I, I'm sorry for saying simple. I mean, it sounds a little bit demeaning, but uh, HCI is a sub-branch of that gigantic field, which studies the um, the, the interplay between humans and, um, and, and computing devices. So that was, you know, kind of the stroke of luck, which is that several people uh, around the country actually were also thinking along the same lines. And I would say that my network somewhat formed but somewhat formed organically. Uh, I maintained very good relationships with people that I met during my PhD, but they were mostly working on systems. They were mostly veering off into, I would say, even more the hardware end of things that I was trying to get away from. So instead, I basically started to talk to people who were writing papers that I was reading and that I was enjoying. Um, I remember one of the first things that I did when I came to Carnegie Mellon, was to talk to Adrian Perig, who was actually my, uh, my neighbor uh, in the office and, and a very good friend of mine. But I was really interested in a specific arc of research that they had kind of stumbled upon um, through a student's internship. So one of these students was doing an internship. They got a dump of data uh, from um, underground markets. And they just said, you know, this is really interesting. Um, usually people write blog posts about these things can we maybe just do this a little bit in a more principled manner? Can we do a little bit more uh, in-depth analysis of um, of this data? And so they did, and they came up with what was, at the time, what I would say was probably the first paper on online crime um, and, and computer security. That's about 2007. And so I saw this, and I thought, "Wow, this is this is kind of the type of things that really resonates with me." And I talked to Adrian. I told him, "All right, I'm, I'm interested in that. You know, can we can we work together? Uh, I'll uh, I'll give you free labor." And Adrian was more interested in other uh, aspects of computer security. He had an interest in that one, but he was more like, "Well, you know, this is kind of..." A one-off project for me because my student brought this to me. I helped them out with that, but I really um, I, I don't plan on writing, you know, 20 papers on the subject. My uh, my interests lie elsewhere, and so I saw kind of an opening. I thought, well, you know, if you don't want to uh, to engage that much in that, uh, maybe I can still uh, try to do it, and and so. Uh, that's kind of where I got started in online crime again something that requires fairly deep technical work uh, you collect data that is not necessarily very easy to collect and to combine it with economic techniques economic measurements uh, economic theories uh, also and that was basically how I got started in uh, in, in that specific field um, and then I I branched out. As a faculty, so one one big difference between a very early career researcher and a more seasoned researcher is that you ought to branch out. I mean, as your number of students goes up, you're not going to focus on just one project. Uh, I mean, this happens, but it's it's rare. Uh, I would say that you need to branch out a little bit. And I discovered in the process that what I really liked and what I was really good at it's important to find what you're really good at, uh, was combining measurements, so more technical work of extracting measurements from networks, from individuals, from what have you, with large-scale data analysis with an eye toward uh, public policy findings, public policy outcomes, or more generally uh, societal outcomes. And so that kind of became my signature, so to speak, which is a combination of data science, computer security, computer networks, but mostly computer security, uh, and always with an eye toward public policy and societal applications. So that's you know my career in eight minutes, uh, but that's <laughs> that's kind of to try to explain how I, I I went from you know hardcore systems into building or being part of not really building but being part of a network of, of like-minded individuals.
0: And and that's uh, precisely sort of the thing that's worth analyzing, I think, for for my listeners because I mean your your biography there so vividly illustrates the 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 kicking off point that we had here where you're suggesting PhDs look to become more independent, look to find their own voice, and among. A million things that I noted here as you were speaking, one particular sort of triangle showed up for me, three points on a triangle, which perhaps you can relate a bit to each other. I'll I'll name each of them. I mean, the one is, how is it that you notice that communities of people are following a certain line of research? You, You so wonderfully put it as, yeah, there's an element of luck, but you have to be aware that things are also going on. Perhaps certain areas are already already taken up and others might be more conducive or fruitful and and that is the second point in the triangle recognizing where you are it, it's a bit crowded if you like where you have perhaps people who are doing just such excellent work that at that stage in your re- um, career you're better off perhaps looking elsewhere and th- and then the last point is the one that you just ended off with there this this interplay between what you, like and what you're good at and how to recognize these things. So to just sort of swing it all together, I guess what I'm asking you, uh, Nicholas is in your own biography or perhaps your experience with, with PhDs, how is it that you bring these factors together? This who I am and what I'm good at, what it is that is already being done and where lines of research are developing so that people can get going on a career that turns out to be successful.
1: That's a wonderful question and a very hard one to answer um, but let me try um, so let me start with the, the first aspect of you know recognizing emerging communities because that's probably the easiest thing um, as a researcher you always need to keep your eyes peeled for new papers new domains new uh, new lines of research and usually what's gonna happen is that there's gonna be probably... In computer science, we we do a lot of work in conferences, uh, primarily in conferences. So there's probably going to be one paper at one conference that tackles a subject that is fairly new. Let me give you a couple of examples. About five, six years ago, maybe, uh, we started seeing papers about um, intimate partner abuse appearing at computer security conferences. This seems to be a completely disconnected topic, and yet it's very, very related. Why? Well, because if you've got an abusive partner, nowadays, given the world we live in, where everything is technologically oriented, your whole life is on your phone. And if you want to bully somebody, or if you want to pressure somebody, you probably will try to get access to their phone, or to use their phone to track you, or to use some technology of some sort. And so, something that was pretty much I would say, you know, sociological research 20 years ago, 25 years ago, now is increasingly technical, uh, technical work. And so you see this one, two papers appearing, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And um, very, very quickly thereafter, if there's enough traction, if if the if the field is fruitful enough for abundant research, those. One or two papers are going to become five, six papers, maybe a whole track at a conference, or maybe even a separate workshop. So this is one of the things that I observed uh, in my day, Uh, so circa 2004-2005, I was interested in interplay between economics and um, uh, computer science. And and in particular, the economics of uh, technology adoption. Uh, And this is because of... uh, experiences again during my uh, my time as a phd student where i was told yeah great idea but you know what's the business case for it and i was like i don't know it's it's cool I, it should be deployed um, and so I, I realized that okay well maybe i should study a little bit uh those uh, those economic factors and at the time i realized that there were a couple of papers already you know kind of looking at this and they morphed into workshops like the workshop on the uh, economics of internet uh, security, wise, uh, and a couple of others. There were tracks at conferences like um, ACM EC and uh, Electronic Commerce, um, and uh, the, the the Web Conference, which at the time was called Blah Blah Blah. So you kind of see that you know things are emerging. Now, to bring it to the second uh, aspect of the triangle, figuring out what you're good at and what you like, I think that's Pretty easy, but it requires uh, two different things. It requires to be very careful about keeping your imposter syndrome in check, Uh, and that's something that fortunately I, I don't think I have. I I think I'm probably pretty arrogant, but a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my friends uh, have, you know, real doubts, and it's it's very healthy. Uh, you 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 have to have doubts uh, as a researcher because you're really pushing the envelope. But having doubts doesn't mean that you should bring yourself down. Um, you're re- it's it's really important to realize you know what I like this thing, and I'm going to do it anyway. And not to go after you know something that is particularly popular, just go after something that you think is fun. Because let's face it, when you do research, it's you know it's it's it's. The work-life balance is, is very much, um, uh, well, it's very difficult because work becomes life and life becomes work, right? You're, you're really engrossed in what you're doing. And I think that I have a pretty good work-life balance because what I do for work is kind of the type of stuff that I would do as a hobby uh, if, um, if I wasn't you know, in that profession. I like to try to answer those questions. I like to pick up you know a newspaper and think, huh, interesting article, but they didn't look at X oh, wait, I have the training to look at X. Maybe I can do that. And so that's kind of what I try to cultivate in my students to let them kind of go and explore, have fun with what you like. And, you know, it's likely that I'm going to get interested in it as well. My job as a PhD advisor, as a faculty advisor, will be to kind of, convince funding agencies and convince others that this is a line of research that is worth pursuing, that is worth, you know, uh, connecting to existing strands of research. But as a student, you should have the freedom, at least some freedom, uh, especially in the beginning, to explore what it is that you like. And usually what it is that you like is also what it is that you're good at. Uh, so it's a combination of both, right? I mean, you like certain things, you start reading papers in that area because you're interested in that area. At the same time, you realize that yeah, you know, more and more people are getting interested in it. Maybe there is a community that is forming, and I've got a chance to be part of that community and 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 to put in the hours, uh, to put in the effort because frankly, you need to do that. I mean, there's there's uh, fairly similar parallels between. Um, High-level athletics and and research, uh, you've got to practice a lot. You've got to train a lot. You've got to do a lot of things. You've got to fail a lot. Um, there's, that's that's one thing that I want to bring up also for um, junior researchers and in particular PhD students. All you see are people's success. It's the really the teeny tiny emerging part of the iceberg. Uh, if I had a dime for every paper that got rejected that I submitted. That happened again to me this morning. Actually, uh, I I would be extremely rich. So you see the CV, you see, oh wow, this guy has a bunch of really important publications. Yes, and I've got probably five times as many rejections, right? But you don't see that, right? So it's it's what's going to keep you going. If you don't like what you're doing, if you're not you know really into it, it's going to be really hard because the job of a researcher is to try to push the envelope and essentially to be told no all the time. And if you're like, well, you're telling me no, but I think I'm right because I enjoy what I'm doing and I think that there is potential, if you have this um, assurance within yourself that what you're doing matters, then the pill is going to be very easy to swallow. Somebody tells you no and you're like, well, okay, fair point, but you're wrong. And I'm going to get better and I'm going to convince you that I'm actually right. So that's, that's something that... It's very hard when you're a junior student. It's very hard when you don't have any of those uh, landmarks that kind of confirm that you were right. Um, it's it's very hard for a student to get their first paper rejected. I mean, I see that very often. But um, Ultimately, when, when you manage to get to that level where you're pretty sure that what you're doing is the right direction, it doesn't mean that you know, your reviewers are idiots that don't understand what they're doing. It means that you need to improve your communication. You need to be better at communicating your work. But if you have some sort of assurance about um, the fact that what you're doing matters, then, again, it's going to happen, right? I mean, eventually, it, it will work out.
0: I, I really like the way that you bring together this idea of the assurance and the communication because they stand in nicely also for this idea, which you've pursued as well um, in your own biography and, and what you say now about PhDs, that it's the individual who needs to know themselves, but that individual also needs to be looking outward and know the community or sub-communities, which, which is precisely the point when I talk about a scientific network or, or a scientific community. Um I really want there's a very nice segue here, especially what you say there about communication into the areas of reading and writing. But I, I'd, I'd like to hang on to this network idea for maybe just five more minutes, because there's one other question concerning particularly PhDs when they're in somebody's research group. So maybe perhaps even think of your own or research groups that you've been in and the collaboration inside of the group. Very many papers, of course, occur through um, collaborations that cross uh, institutional boundaries or perhaps even national boundaries and so on. But then there's certainly going to be a level that goes on inside of a research group. And that is also a, a vital skill, I think, that would be, be pass, would be being passed on at that moment. And I suppose the question that I'm asking is when you've got new people entering into a group, I, I would imagine that very many people coming out of their master's studies are not let's say, highly attuned to what it takes to collaborate or why they would need to collaborate or how to just even go about doing it. So is, is there, in your experience, anything that has worked particularly well in bringing young researchers together in some of their first experiences at collaboration?
1: I think there's a couple of things that, uh, that do help. So the first one is going to sound very trivial, but it's important. When you're applying for a PhD, and I know it's a little bit different between Europe and the United States, but assuming that you have the choice of research group that uh, you're going to be in, one of the most important things is to choose a group whose research interests are aligned with yours, but they don't have to be perfectly aligned. I mean, they have to be generally aligned because it's likely that what you're going to do three, five years from now, is not exactly what you thought you were going to be doing. So that's important, but that's not as important as you know um, a very junior person might think. Yeah, the general topic, yes, I want to do work in computer security. I want to do work in networks. All right, fine. But the specific topic, I think it's good to keep a little bit of flexibility. And the reason why I'm saying that is that If you have the choice between multiple research groups within a university or across universities, then the distinguishing criterion, the thing that you really should pay attention to, is which group sounds the nicest. Not in terms of publications, not in terms of prestige, not in terms of any of that stuff. That will come by itself. If you do good work, you'll end up in good places. But you have to realize that you're going to work with those people for the next three, five, six, seven years, uh, depending on where you are. And so it's important that you can see yourself, you know, interacting with those people. It doesn't mean, you know, spending every waking hour with them, but that you feel like they're going to have your back and that you can have their backs. Because again, a PhD in early career research is extremely demanding in terms of uh, psychological demands, and your research group should be kind of the first. Uh, line of defense, I would say. I mean, th- those should be people that have your back. When you get a paper rejected, when things don't go your way, when an experiment fails, you need to have people that are going to be here to ground you and to give you you know, this, uh, this help that you need. So that's the first thing, and I think that's pretty important because we tend to be overly focused on technical details, and sometimes we, we just forget that ultimately a lot of it is built on human-to-human relationships, In terms of the mechanics of uh, fostering collaboration, so one thing helps a lot, and we have it in the United States. In Europe, there are similar programs. But I would say this is for people that are perhaps even younger than uh, the uh, the audience of this podcast. Try to do research experiences as an undergraduate, really. Go to an internship in a lab. Go hang out. Go bring coffee to the advisor. I'm exaggerating, but um, we have a number of undergraduate students at Carnegie Mellon that show up and they just say, hey, you know, I think that what you guys are doing is cool. I have this and that skill. Can I help? And usually the skills are, yeah, I know how to program a little bit in Python. I know C programming. I know this. I know that. None of that is, you know, deep technical uh, research skills. But that's enough to say, well, you know what, you want to collaborate? Hey, we've got this thing, no one has time to do it. Build, I don't know, a web interface, for instance, for this uh, specific research project. And so the student, as an undergraduate, kind of gets acquainted to research. They don't really participate necessarily directly in the research, although sometimes that happens, but certainly not at the onset, but they get exposed to the meetings. They start seeing the dynamics, seeing the collaborations. And usually those undergraduate students apply to PhD programs very often they go elsewhere, uh, because we, we like to have a little bit of diversity and to you know not keep people uh, for 10 years in the same university. But likewise, the people that are coming in very often are people who've had this experience of at least observing the mechanics of research. And that's extremely valuable. Uh, it does make a difference at admission time. Uh, if, if you have research experience, you're already in the top X percent, where X is pretty small, uh, and and that that definitely gives you a, um, a clear leg up on uh, on on, on, a, on others in a very competitive environment. Um, but if that doesn't happen, if you know you come into a PhD program with zero or near zero research experience, which was my case, by the way, by the way, as a student, I had essentially no research experience when uh, when I was a PhD student when I started well when I started as a master's student. Uh, I think that what is important is to just observe. Uh, try to hang out with as many project groups as you can within your research group, with other research groups, with the permission of your advisor. Uh, just tell your advisor, hey, they are doing this project that seems kind of cool. Can I just sit in on their meetings? Chances are good your advisor is going to say, oh yeah, sure, no worries. Just you know go and learn, and to somewhat you know observe the dynamics, observe you know how things are taking place before you actually engage yourself in those collaborations. So a lot of what I do with my first year students is not to assign them any specific project. Again, like like with everything, there are exceptions. I mean, we have students that are, you know, leading their own projects in year one. But usually for us, uh, and we've got a little bit more the luxury of time than, than you do in Europe, usually for us, year one is explore. Just hang out with a bunch of different research groups. I don't care if you publish zero papers this year. What I want you to do is to get a sense of the dynamics, the you know, kind of unspoken rules of collaboration and, and learn them by, uh, by osmosis because it's not something that you can really teach. It's something that you observe. And so when that phase is complete, when the student starts to collaborate more actively with papers, it goes very naturally right because they're kind of reproducing what they've seen before so to me that's that's quite important if you haven't had that experience as an undergraduate
0: you use the word unspoken rules and you also in the way that you illustrate how say an undergraduate even can already start gaining experience or impressions of how research activity goes along you really show that what's involved here is initiative which must, must translate upward as well. I mean, as you become an early career researcher, maybe find yourself into a postdoc position or as an initial position as a a PI, this idea of, okay, right. I need to be technically extremely expert and so on, but I need to also realize that this is a social activity in which I'm involved in research is sharing and research is thinking together. And, in recognizing that, it's almost like the initiative would be a logical follow-on, wouldn't it?
1: Yes, that's very true. And when I was mentioning unspoken rules, um, I think that I want to make one point very clear. It's not like, at least in my group and in many groups that I know of, it's not like there's an established hierarchy of, you know, the professor descending onto his postdocs or her postdocs who are themselves managing a bunch of people. It's it's very, very flat, uh, and it, to me, and maybe, you know, opinions differ here, but to me, it's important that it's flat, that, you know, very often I have students, rarely first years because they are still a little bit too ripe for that, but second, third years, that tell me, Nicholas, you're completely wrong. This is not how it works. I'm like, okay, well, you know, explain it to me. And we have this dialogue. So one of the unspoken rules is that you... Should always be very respectful of everybody, be it you know first year undergraduate or the dean of the school, it shouldn't matter. it's exactly the same. you need to treat everybody the same and to be extremely respectful of everybody and everybody else's opinions. but that doesn't mean that you need to be deferential. If you think that something is wrong, say it nicely, I disagree, I think you know, and argue for it and perhaps you will realize that You're not 100% right, and the other person is not 100% wrong. And perhaps, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, it very often is. But that's what I meant by uh, unspoken rules. Yeah, it's no, it's I the guess. fact that you have to be a good citizen, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I actually uh, uh, sidetracked off of that. I wanted to say something also about unspoken rules. But I, I think that's wonderful, though, this idea of so an encounter in the group between, let's just say, somebody who's less senior and somebody who's more senior, where the less senior person disagrees. In a sense, you have a microcosm of the scientific network in that moment, don't you? Because, I mean, it is, I would say, ultimately almost impossible or rare to find stuff out there in the literature which is just blatantly and 100% wrong. It increases, it progresses it or advances, excuse me, and it progresses or advances what's known and what's being done because everyone is just improving upon most of what's there, I would imagine.
1: That's very, very true. Uh, One of the things that is a pet peeve of mine when we uh, train new researchers is that very junior researchers, when they write a related work section, they tend to say, you know, uh, they tend tend to say, um, well, you know, this previous work didn't do X, didn't do Y. And essentially, you know, they write in a fairly negative way about previous work, and what they need to know, what they need to convince themselves of is that this is not a competition, you're not winning by putting the other person down. Instead, you need to respect the previous work, because if it wasn't there, you probably wouldn't be writing this paper in the first place. And so instead, explain, you know, they've done A, B, and C, we need D. They didn't go that far, but, you know, they already did A, B, and C. So we are doing D, and that's how we are different from this previous work. Not better, not, you know, um, I mean, you can be better if your performance numbers are, are better, of course. But never say, you know, something negative about previous work because chances are good you wouldn't exist without it. So there's no reason to put it down. And I think that this is something that really needs to resonate with um, with, young, with younger students. Another thing that needs to resonate and just as a quick aside is that uh, the results and the scientific methods are really important. and that's probably 10% of what you've done because what you've probably done is spent nights and days cleaning up data and writing you know lots of code to process that stuff and you want to describe that because yeah, that's what you spent you know, your whole time doing. And the truth is, no one cares. People care about the soundness of the scientific findings. So if you can prove that, if you can show the results and convince anybody with knowledge in, uh, in the field that the way you've done it is the right way, that's all you need. But you need to focus on the results. No one wants to know how you went about, you know, cleaning your Pandas data frame, for instance. Uh, that's, that's not really important for science or even for reproducibility. So uh, that's another thing that, you know, is kind of a telltale sign that somebody is still very early in their career. I mean, maybe a first year PhD student.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that focus on research activity rather than research results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've now moved uh, officially over into reading and writing. So that's also very good. Um, The thought that I had in mind when I was picking up your idea of the unspoken rules, which is widespread in the area of, um, let's say, academic services or writing studies or other such support um, networks that are put in place at universities or research institutes to really just help people realize that what you might be thinking and what you see as going on might be running according to a different culture or a different norm than you immediately realize. And, and the idea of transparency is, is what's often emphasized there. And that's actually one of the motivations of this podcast to make unspoken rules become spoken, which is what you're doing for us today, Nicholas. So thank you very much. (laughs) Um, But, but in the area of, of, of reading, I find that one unspoken sort of rule is that, you can read, as, as you've said earlier also, to identify communities. I mean, you can read to learn about the research, but you also can track what people are researching about in the reading. So it's almost as if one of the unspoken possibilities of reading is, or another way of using text for research, is to see what people are doing and not just what people have found.
1: Yes, it's very important, and I think that this is particularly important for, um, I would say, early career, professors, postdocs, I mean, people who are already at that stage independent. One thing that I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend, because it took me a couple of years before doing it, and in hindsight, um, I shouldn't have waited that long. Review, program committees, participate in those. Yes, it's a ton of work. It's a lot of work, but you get an early glimpse, you get a preview, you get a sneak preview of what it is that people are working on. And that's really important because it tells you the way the research community as a whole is moving. So nowadays I would say that I do most of my reading through reviewing. Very often when I hear about a good paper at a conference in my field, there's probably, I would say, I mean, and I'm i going to make enemies by saying that, but there's probably a 15 to 20% chance that uh, I have seen that paper uh, before, maybe even higher than that. When I'm saying I have seen that paper, I meant I've reviewed it. Or if it's people that I know and that I work directly with and with whom I have a conflict, I've seen their preprint. So I would say it's more than 15. It's probably closer to maybe 30, 40%. But you basically get an idea of what's going on. Now, as a PhD student, it's a little bit more difficult, uh, especially nowadays in computer science. Review delegation is, uh, well, at least in computer security, review delegation is increasingly frowned upon. Um, but um, you might be asked, you know, by your advisor, hey, look, I've got 18 paper reviews to do in the next two weeks, can you help me out with two? And, yeah, it's going to take you an inordinate amount of time, but do it because it's well worth it. And if your advisor is serious about it, she or they will um, they will help you out with, uh, with the review. And also it helps you put things in perspective when you receive those reviews. So reading as some sort of... Um, um, way of keeping your finger on the technological pulse, to me, that's a lot more important than reading about what people have found. Because if I want to read what people have found, I'm going to be very curt here, but I go to Twitter and I see the one-line summary of the paper that the researcher is, is, uh, is, is uh, uh, tweeting about. If I want to know how they've done it, I go and I scheme the paper. But if I really want to understand the whole process of research and what led them to the idea, then I really have to read the paper. Um, and so, it's, it's very important. Results are really, once again, the emerging tip of the iceberg uh, in, uh, in, in, the, um, in the reading process, in my opinion.
0: That's um, <laughs> that's just that's just some fantastic stuff what you say there. That's great. I, I want to come briefly back to uh, review delegation um, as a more concrete topic. But but what you've just said there about I want to find the results. You know, I skim off what the you know maybe from like an abstract type announcement and and Twitter or elsewhere. If I want to know how they do it, well, then I go into the preliminaries or the methodology or the other parts of the paper where I can find that out. But my keen interest is in, if I might use two terms which I'll define immediately, my keen interest is in the context and in the, the interest itself or the purpose itself. So in other words, where are ideas being generated from and why is it those particular ideas and why by them? So at least in my field, uh, and I think it probably generalizes a little bit beyond computer
1: security and, and, and privacy, you will get a pretty good idea of where the idea comes from, from reading the introduction of the paper very carefully. Um, Because it will typically start with either a sort of case study, X does Y, and this is what happened to them, and okay, yeah, we need to fix that problem. Or it will tell you how how the paper inscribes itself in a larger body of work. Without going through the whole related work of yeah we are different from A B and C in this and that way, but more like yeah this is what you know the state of the art is and this is what we are bringing to the table, and you can somewhat backtrack then. You can try to see from those earlier papers what was the initial spark, what was the key motivation for that whole line of research, and I would say that in some cases when you do this you know ten years after the fact when when you are um, doing your your little reading uh, seminar, your weekly reading group, and you go back to, you know, very seminal papers in a given field, you realize that perhaps the initial idea came from a case study, or a problem that actually was not a problem at all. But the thing became famous because it was applied to a different context, and that's completely fine. And that tells you something about, you know, the Serendipitousness or the, the 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 randomness of you know what sticks and and what doesn't. What's important is to do good work. I mean, solid technical work that's unassailable. Um Popularity, you know, that's that's kind of winning the lottery. Um, if you had asked me, you know, twenty years ago, what I thought I was going to uh, quote unquote become famous for, if, if can become famous for anything, that failed. I probably would have told you something that has absolutely nothing to do with the papers that eventually got some traction. Um, So, it's really important to, again, to answer your question, read the introduction and, you know, if it doesn't provide you with all of those answers about how the idea emerged, backtrack, go to the papers that this is citing, go to the papers that this is building on, and then you probably will be able to figure out what was the General thought process of the whole community, not just of a group of authors, but of the whole community, and how those ideas evolved. And perhaps, if you're lucky, you'll think, "Wait a minute, we've been doing it wrong all this time." And that kind of takes you back when you think that, because you're like, "There's, you know, probably 20 or 50 very, very smart people that looked at this and they looked at it all wrong." But that does happen. It does happen, and then that gives you an opportunity to, to say, "Well," I'm going to do it in a different way, and let's see where this where this goes.
0: That really blends nicely this idea of what the reading is worth and to return to our first topic, what the community or the network is worth I, I find I find that wonderful because it and it also is is supported by findings from science of science um, where essentially papers that cite at what they call the quote unquote bleeding edge of research so the last two to three years, tend to have less or less long-standing impact than the papers that dig a bit deeper back 10 to 15 years. And and that would mesh perfectly with the advice that you're telling us there of follow the track, build up the context. If the introductions are not enough, then find those references and go back into there and reconstruct the communities for yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think this is something that we're all guilty of in computer science the so for 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 your audience that is not necessarily familiar with that field we publish in conferences we tend to publish at an extremely high rate it's not uncommon for full professors to have hundreds of papers a hundred to a hundred um we've got in computer security alone four conferences a year where there's a couple of hundred papers so all in all you get like maybe a thousand papers in that fairly you know it's it's now a pretty big field but it's still a somewhat narrow field in, in compared to the whole body of human knowledge. And no one has the time to read all of this, uh, let alone to read things that are published in uh, perhaps slightly less visible venues. So it's really important to know how to distill this information. And, and if you're very, very early career, that probably seems like a very daunting, almost insurmountable task but that's precisely where your mentors and your advisors are going to help you. If they don't, bug them. I mean, that's really their job. Uh, they have the experience. They know how to quickly sift through this because it's very daunting and it's, it's very difficult to do when, you are, when you're a brand new uh, researcher. You're like, okay, well, go find me all of the papers that deal with X in the past three years of security conferences. And you'll realize that there's 35 papers dealing with X. How do you sort it out? The truth is, if you're very junior, you probably can't. You don't have the skills yet to be able to do that. It will come, you'll build those skills, but initially you need to get some help. And that's where your thesis director, your advisor, whatever you want to call it, your mentor, they are going to help. That's their job. That's their main job, actually. It's to guide you and to help you acquire those skills. Not to do the work for you, but to help you out with, with those, um, those difficulties.
0: I wonder if there's also a role there for peer mentoring. So perhaps somebody who is nearing the end of their PhD time or is in perhaps a postdoctoral position. So let's say typically there's perhaps a five to six year difference between the two people and someone just entering the group and... Uh, For example, I mean, you mentioned weekly reading groups. I wonder if there's scope there for some of this to be delegated also from an advisor to someone else who's less junior, clearly, than the advisor, but more senior than the person whom they're helping.
1: I think that this kind of delegation is very useful uh, for all parties involved, uh, because it's a good training exercise for the early career researcher, the postdoc or the um, uh, the research staff that you have uh, working with you, it's very fruitful also for the uh, very 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 junior uh, PhD student uh, because they probably get a little bit more face time with that uh, postdoc than they would with the main advisor. But I would caution against overly delegating. Um, I I've been guilty of it in the past, uh, and it turns out that you need to walk a very fine line. Because if you completely delegate and don't even you know, really meet with the first year student, it ends up being counterproductive in the sense that your postdoc is going to be overwhelmed. Um, they might be facing difficult situations. And honestly, they have zero experience so uh, of, of advising, right? I mean, not zero, but very little experience. So you don't want to throw them uh, into the deep end right away. Uh, at the same time, you want to give them some level of independence. You want to let them think for themselves. So I think it's important to be there. And what I'm trying to do uh, nowadays, and it's it's hard because, well, again, you know, those things kind of scale in the way they scale, but perhaps a good compromise is to attend those meetings as much as you can, maybe not every single one of them, but maybe maybe every other meeting, and to stay as silent as possible. Let them... Talk to each other, observe the interactions, and then maybe just gently nudge one party or the other if you realize that things may be veering a little bit off track. Um, of course, that's in an ideal world. I mean, as as you can tell from from this interview, I have a very very hard time staying silent. Um, but uh, you know, that's that's the goal uh, when when you're doing this kind of training. So. It's a little bit like you know being on a on a on a small bike with training wheels on. Uh, the training wheels are here; they are not really useful for anything. It's more a s- psychological thing, and you gradually retreat. And I've done that with a couple of uh, postdocs, and and I I would say it, it worked out fairly well. Uh, I think at least.
0: Well, that's uh, that's good advice. Uh, uh, one thing before we turn uh, maybe to about five or ten minutes on scientific writing, one last point on reading is this review delegation. It's interesting to hear that you say it is frowned upon, and that's entirely understandable uh, for reasons of uh, the advancement of the research. But I wonder what, let's say, means or methods might be available there to at least have it so that PIs are able to introduce, incorporate, uh, and introduce uh, young researchers to, to the art of reviewing and also incorporate perhaps some of their feedback into their own review.
1: Yeah, that's a very touchy subject because when I was a PhD student myself, uh, review delegation was extremely common. Uh, it was actually the norm rather than the exception. And in computer security, what has happened over the past decade or so is that um, there's been perhaps a little bit of over delegation, and then people would show up at PC meeting without really having read the papers, and so they had to argue about stuff that they had no clue about. Um, and, you know, that led to the disastrous results that that you can imagine. I think that nowadays, if you want to do it, and if you want to do it right, the best way to do review delegation is not really to delegate. You still put your name as the advisor or as the PI on the review. You endorse full responsibility for it. But you ask a student to help you out. And if you have time, and that's a big if, uh, which More senior people probably have time to do that because they can say no to a lot of uh, reviewing activities. More junior people, it's a little bit more difficult. But if you have a relatively limited number of reviews, what you can do is to have the advisor write their review, ask the student to write a review, and then you sit down and you talk to each other and you say, okay, I saw this and that in that paper. What did you see? And you jointly author the review. You put the name of the advisor in the system and of course, when they ask, you know, did you use an external reviewer, you say, yes, I used student X. But you don't tell the student, hey, sign up on this, I have nothing to do with it. So it's a collaborative process. It's extremely time consuming. Um, but it's probably the best way of, of mentoring uh, junior researchers with, with the reviewing process.
0: All right, yeah, I see. Um, moving on to our last topic, which is, as I said, scientific writing. One area that sort of perennially recurs is writing habits. Um, people in the sciences are dependent upon writing the communication and the, uh, record of research is, is essential to advancement. Um, careers can depend upon it. And the last two years of work depend on what you're able to produce in those 15 pages. All this is sort of accepted and, and it's the state of, of, well, not the state of the art, but it's the state of the research. And the thing is, is that very many people in science don't particularly like writing or if that's not the case they haven't necessarily been trained in text say somebody say as somebody in the humanities somebody with modern languages background somebody with a classics background a literature background in the same way and yet text is as I've just sort of described so so central to what they do so to get back to this idea of writing habits very many people have a a block when it comes to beginning a project and it takes them more time than they actually feel comfortable with and yet they look for ways around this and and unfortunately often don't find ways Uh, first off i suppose does any of this what i'm saying resonate with you and secondly if yes what what have you done about these issues
1: oh it absolutely resonates with me even today even you know 25 years into my career as a researcher Sometimes I'm not totally sure how to address, how to tackle a specific um, problem. So let me, uh, let me say a couple of things. Uh, first, I'm so happy that you brought up the uh, topic of background in the humanities. We want more people who have studied classics in computer science. So this is, you know, an open call. I love people who can tell me, you know, everything about Greek mythology and that have studied their classics, people with, you know, a background beyond, yeah, I know how to use TensorFlow. Uh, so if you're an undergraduate and if you're thinking of doing a career in computer science or in research in general, it's not a bad idea to take one or two classic courses. You're going to expand your horizons. It's going to help you in your career. Believe me, it will. So that's the first thing that I wanted to, uh, to mention because it's somewhat counterintuitive and people are like, well, you know, it's kind of a waste of time. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. And uh, it's, it's actually very precious. Now, to your second point, to your second question. The way I do it, and again, that's perhaps um, more due to the fact that i mean a uh, pure engineering discipline, but it's to treat technical writing like I would treat code writing. I have to write code for research, I mean, nowadays my students write a lot of the code, I write a little bit less. I still write some, uh, much to my students' chagrin, but um, treat it in the same way. So, establish some sort of rules, establish some sort of scaffolding, establish some sort of um, of, of guidelines to help you writing. So, one of the things that I do uh, when I write an introduction, and one of the things that I tell all of my students, because it's not you know it's not a state secret or anything, is in an introduction you need to answer A variant of five questions. This is something that in the United States is known uh, under various names. I mean, they all converge to the same uh, ID, but in the Department of Defense it was uh, called the Heilmeier Catechism, I think. Uh, It's something fairly related to that. What's the problem? Why do we care about the problem? Why hasn't it been solved before? What's the shape of our solution? What's our general ID, so to speak? And why do we think it's going to work? And so, anytime we start an introduction, I put in the comments of the text. Did you answer those five questions? And the first time you try, it's probably going to be pretty crappy, but it gives you some sort of a guideline, and that's the best way for me, at least. And I don't know if that works for everybody, but I think it works for me, and it works for some of my students. It's the best way to to beat you know this uh, anxiety of the blank page, because okay, now I've got some questions to answer. Let me just fill it in. And yeah, it's going to suck, but at least this page is not going to be blank anymore. Um, Then, I would say that once you've gotten started, um, the first draft is probably going to be atrocious. And it doesn't matter if you're a first-year PhD student or a 25-year-old veteran of the research scene, your first draft is probably not going to be very good. So you need to give yourself enough time so that you can read cover to cover your paper and just you know, continuously improve the, um, the writing. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote of somebody who is absolutely not a researcher, but that really resonated with me. Uh, it's Dave Grohl, the, the guy who used to, to drum for Nirvana and who is now the, the, front, um, the front person for the Foo the Fighters. And he said, you know, how do you become a professional musician? Well, you get with some friends, in a garage, you don't know how to play an instrument, and you start playing, and you're going to suck, and the neighbors are going to complain, and it's going to be horrible. But then you come back the following day, and you do the same thing, and you suck a teeny tiny bit less, and you do it again, and again, and again, and eventually you get good at it. And, you know, this is a very simple idea, applied in that case to music, but that also applies to research, which is that repetition makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. You rewrite, you rewrite, you rewrite, and eventually you're going to get better at it. So one thing that you said really resonates with me too, which is a lot of people don't like technical writing. I used to absolutely detest technical writing. When I was a PhD student, it was awful. I just didn't want to write. Why? Well, because I'm interested in fiction and I'm interested in more flowery writing, which doesn't necessarily works work very well with uh, technical writing. Although, again. If you get good at it, then you can actually use that that background. But definitely, when you're very junior, it's it's hard. So I absolutely detested it. I didn't want to do it until I got to a level where I got you know more comfortable with what I was doing, and then I realized you know it's actually kind of fun because I'm trying to convince the world that my idea is cool. And so at that point, and for me, it was probably in my second year as a uh, faculty member. So it was not super, super young, right? But I felt like, oh, wait, now I'm like, I actually enjoy this because I'm like, I'm selling something to the world, so to speak. And I want to show how cool it is. And it went from this chore that I had to do because, yeah, you need to publish because otherwise you're not going to get a PhD to look how cool my stuff is. And when you start to get into that mindset, which again, in my case, took probably about seven years. Uh, for other people, it's quicker, but uh, you know, uh, it 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 may take as long as that. It becomes a very enjoyable process, and then you start, you know, uh, really enjoying it. Um, and another thing that that can help is if you are, as you mentioned earlier, the topic of collaborations. If you're writing with somebody who enjoys writing this enjoyment, to me, becomes a little bit contagious. Because you see the other person having fun, and you're like, how bad can it be if this person is enjoying themselves? And you read what they're doing, and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that looks very cool. And as researchers, we're all a teeny tiny bit competitive, I think. So if you see somebody doing something cool, you're like, "Wait a minute, I can probably do something cool too." And so there's this you know very um uh, nice emulation, not competitive uh, but but um uh, somewhat productive, I would say so that's that's kind of you know again a fairly long winded answer to a very simple question, but I think that the very simple question actually demands very complicated answers because it's uh, writing is tricky writing is really tricky.
0: Yeah, and I think that writing is tricky. is 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 really a thing to recognize, and 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 secondly, to recognize the place of writing. It's one thing to sort of off by rote say, "Hey, writing's really important. People's careers depend upon it, and the literature is formed by our writing." That's not the same as what you're saying when you talk about people being excited about this. I'm trying to convince the world, or or even just this sort of attitude or mindset of a scientist who finally recognizes yeah hey this is what we're doing and by this I mean the writing down of ideas because any other way it all gets lost and I suppose the, and I suppose the other thing to that in the writing itself as a mechanical process and as a thinking process because it's always both, It's worth recognizing the act for what it truly is. You brought up some interesting quotes from Nirvana. Great. (laughs) I I have a quote here which which, um, also talks to the way that writing actually works. And and, and you saying after so many years, you still face the difficulty of writing. Sometimes it's worth recognizing that it is that way. The quote from Verlin Klinkenborg, who is well known in um, writing on style. And he says, "But but if you accept that writing is hard work, and that's what it feels like while you're writing, well then everything is as it should be. So yep. <laughs> So this idea that there's a workaround, there's a system, there's an approach, there's a fix. No, it's 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 difficult, but it can be great.
1: Yeah, and I think that earlier I mentioned this idea of, you know, scaffolding and of using those guidelines. They don't make writing any easier. They just help a little bit, again, this notion of training wheels, this notion of, you know, assist, of crutch. Uh, But yeah, writing is going to be hard. And um, another thing that I think helps, at least helps me, is to think of research as two things. There's all of the technical meat that you have, and that's where you worked really hard. But try to think back about what is it that made you interested in this problem in the first place? why do you care? Why did you spend all of those days, sometimes nights, researching that specific problem? And that should also govern your writing. So there are two parts. You are are going to have to tell a story. And everybody likes to tell stories, right? I mean, think of, you know, telling a story to a child. It's a very enjoyable thing uh, that that has been done since the dawn of times, right? So you're going to tell a story, and you're going to substantiate that story with all of this massive technological undertaking that you've done. But the story is really important, and that makes the writing so much more enjoyable than describing all of the travels that you went through. Because otherwise, it's like, you know, relieving the, uh, uh, the bad memories of, you know, all of those data frames that uh, misbehaved, those servers that uh, that that died when they shouldn't. No! Go back to the essentials. What is the problem that you are trying to solve? But again, writing is very hard. I, I like the quote that uh, that 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 you used. It is hard. It is hard for everybody. Um, it's it's you know there's um, one of the most famous writers of the early early twentieth century in France uh, is Marcel Proust, and he was notorious for having uh, drafts that he would send to the um, to the print, uh, barely readable, because there were so many annotations, so many you know, strikeouts, so many margin notes, that the poor printer had no clue what to do, right? And that tells you about the complexity of the writing process in somebody who is regarded as uh, one of the master of writers uh, in France in the, in the 20th century. So it's hard for everybody. If it's hard for this guy, of course it's going to be hard for you, right? Um, and, and I think that's, yeah, it's as it should be.
0: To close out our interview, um, one of the aims of this podcast is to quite simply just help the research. So if we can say something here that helps an author submit a better paper or a viewer, make a better decision, or even people at research institutes, manage the, these institutes and the people there better then I would like it to be said here. So with that thought in mind, if, if you could pick out any particular group or or set of stakeholders in, in research today in your field or broader, whom would you pick out and, and what would you say to them as a, hey, if we just change this, things would improve by at least that little?
1: Well, I would say that I would probably speak to the whole community. I mean, probably a little bit more on the junior side. I'm i myself senior now, but I was junior until fairly recent. Fairly recently, uh, so I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still fairly close to uh, to the to the junior more the junior crowd. Um, I think that there are two things that are really important. One, which I mentioned earlier, is to really think of this as something enjoyable. If we don't enjoy what we are doing, we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, there's probably better opportunities, more lucrative opportunities, I should say, in other fields than research. If we're doing that, it's because we enjoy the process, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. The moment we stop enjoying the process, we really should think about doing something else. We might not enjoy a specific part of research, like the writing may be painful, the, uh, the data science might be painful, whatever, there may be you know, some difficulties, that's ex- expected. But if the whole process is constantly negative, that's that's mad, obviously. So we should always try to remember why is it that we are doing what we are doing. And if we have a good answer for that, that really helps us hang on to it. The corollary to that is that, and I think that we are making marked improvements, but I really am hoping that we can have a general respect for all and any. Uh, What that means is that it's very important to have very, very vivid, very, very intense academic disagreements. That's fine. We are trying to push the envelope in science, and maybe I think that your idea is not a good one. Um, Or you may think that my idea is terrible. And that's okay, as long as we're super respectful of the other person, that we treat everybody the same, and by that I don't mean treat everybody badly, but I mean treat everybody, you know, like you would treat your mother, Um, then things will improve a lot. Uh, In particular, I, I, I really hope that, and we see this disappearing, which is good, but the appeal to authority just really annoys me. Uh, So-and-so must be right because they're a full professor at University X. I don't care. I mean, they may be wrong too, right? Let's look at science for what it is. Forget about the person. Look at the science and critique the science. If you're talking to the person, be nice to the person.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Nicholas. That is Nicholas Christine, and he is professor at Carnegie Mellon University. This is goodbye from me to Nicholas. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on this Focus of the Podcast, Researchers Talk.